Life, um, especially these days for us and maybe for you, feels a bit like forced improv. And what I mean by that is that we, we each show up with our own scripts for our life, right? We have our, our plotted route from point A to point B and we know just how it's going to work. And we can't help but imagine what our lives are going to be like, right, when you're young. Um, what kind of job we'll have and what our spouse will be like and what our marriage will be like or where we'll live or if we'll have children or not or what kind of parent we'll be or what kind of person we'll be and what we'll be known for. We kind of map out the, the main details of our life and imagine that. And we, we do that with Christian life too. We, we think and consider what, what is following Jesus actually going to mean and, and this is what we think it's going to cost and this is what it's going to consist of. We might be as presumptuous to, to try to schedule our suffering and just the right time slots and plan our pruning. We kind of lay out these seasons and this calendar for the year. And we, in that calendar, we have mostly summers with maybe a little time allotted for winter. But we have a picture of what our lives and what our Christian lives ought to be. But then life forces us to go off script. And you don't get into the program. And you're single or you're divorced and you didn't expect to be. Or someone you thought would be in your life goes away for one reason or another. Maybe you can't have children, or you have children with extra special needs, or or you have major life-interrupting health issues, or whatever it is, life pushes us off script. And Christian life does that as well. The suffering that we didn't schedule arrives anyway. And the pruning maybe happens a little earlier in the year. And maybe the, the growth is just painstakingly slow. Life is a bit like forced improv, and it's not often the funny type or the funny kind. And so the question for this morning is this. So when this unpredictability of life kind of smacks us around a little bit, what do we do? Where do we go when life goes off script and we stagger under the reality of God's schedule when it doesn't line up with ours? Well, I want to read our point for this morning's text and then we'll stand and read it. The point is, when David is vulnerable, fearful, and helpless, he seeks and submits to God and is both delivered and deliverer. David is going to serve as an example for us as we continue looking at the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 23. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one in the lobby. Uh, Let's go ahead and stand and we're going to read uh, chapter 23 of 1 Samuel. Stretch your legs a little bit. It's 28, 29 verses, so this will take a minute, but this is God's word. This is more important than our thoughts or opinions. This is God's voice to us. And so here's what he says. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting at Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then said David, 
O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, in the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it's told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information, then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. You can be seated. <clears throat> what we have here are really two scenes of deliverance. Okay, you'll note that in your little outline in your, in your bulletin. The first scene is David is delivered from the Philistines and Saul when he saves the city of Calah. And the second scene is David is delivered from the Ziphite-Saul alliance by these Philistines. And so what we're going to do is take each of those scenes separately. And then at the, at the end of our sermon, we're going to look at uh, the implications for that and, and draw some, some comparisons. There's some patterns that develop in these two scenes that we're meant to, to notice. So, scene one is this deliverance in the city of Calah. Uh, this is in verses 1 through 14. And I want to break that down into three little points there on your sheet. An untimely and risky assignment in verses 1 through 4. Calah delivered from the Philistines in 5. And then David delivered from Calah and Saul for the remainder of that section in 6 through 14. So we start off with... Um, this word of a Philistine invasion of an Israelite city that's to the west, which is closer to the border of where the Philistines lived. So there was a constant threat. There was, it was a precarious place to be for a city because it was right near uh, Philistia. And so this is probably something that had happened before, but the Philistines were at it again. They were pillaging the grain of these Israelites, taking all their hard work uh, from harvest um, later, it describes how David takes the cattle with them, so it's possible that, that the Philistines actually brought their cattle uh, to enjoy the grain of these uh, Israelites. We can't be certain of that, but that seems likely. 
And so David gets word of this. Now David has a reputation, if you remember. Uh, he's got this ability to put down Philistines. It's kind of his thing, right? If you remember, uh, he's done this uh, time and time again. And he is the anointed king of Israel after all, but, but the timing is terrible. If you look at the text, and why is that? Well, because David's not sitting in a palace somewhere with a ready army to attack, calling from a distance. He is running for his life, right? This is not ideal timing. It would have been tempting for him to look the other way and just let this city be someone else's problem at this point, right? And this is why the men react the way that they do. You see in verse 3, as men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. Like, we're on the run already. How much more than if we go to the Kalah against the army of the Philistines? So they're saying, really, David, it's not enough that we're running from our lives for Saul, so you want to, in your spare time, go up against these Philistines. And so they're not only, I think, pointing to the risk of just battle in general, right, in this Philistine army that's a lot more put together than David's kind of ragtag thing that he's kind of organized in the last few weeks, Um, But there's also another risk. And that's if they get involved with this other thing, guess who's going to hear about it? Saul. And so their involvement also exposes them, which is a major problem, right? You don't intentionally stick your head up if you're playing the whack-a-mole game. Uh, And that's essentially what they would be doing by getting involved in this. But David, true to his kingly form wants to defend his people, and he seeks direction from the Lord. This is a knee-jerk reaction that we need to notice in this chapter. Lord, this is not what I expected. It's not necessarily what I need, but what do you want me to do? It's interesting. I think it's uh, respectable that David actually listens to his men's concerns and goes back and inquires of the Lord again just to make sure, but then he has the guts to follow through on what the Lord says to him, which is, go and attack and save that city. So this is an untimely and a very risky assignment in verses 1 through 4. That's essentially the problem, but we see a quick resolution here uh, in number 2 on your outline, where Kela is delivered from these Philistines in verse 5. It says, And David and his men went to Kalah and fought with the Philistines and brought, brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So, uh, God allows David to win. He, he strikes them down. This is a decisive God-ordained victory. So David seeks the Lord. He gets this unusual assignment. He trusts God. He acts and God comes through. Now, if you remember last week, Saul had just decimated a city, a city of Israel, the city of Nob. Remember that? Where 85 priests were slaughtered because, well, he thought they were involved in this kind of conspiracy to help David. And Saul slaughtered that city, women, children, everyone. So the king in the palace is decimating the cities of Israel, and the king on the run is saving them. You see that difference? That's a contrast that that the author is meaning for us to notice. And this contrast keeps working through the whole uh, text and through the book of 1 Samuel, really. So Kalah is delivered, and then third, David is delivered. In verses 6 through 14, It's interesting, you know, we don't see and hear a lot about Saul up to this point. But Saul's the king. His city's been attacked. He doesn't follow up with them. He doesn't, he's not doing much to fight back. I guess his paranoia keeps you really busy. Uh, And so he's not noticing what his own nation needs. And ironically, the text tells us in uh, verse 6 that this guy Abiathar who is the one remaining descendant who escaped from the slaughter of these priests at the city of Nob, who actually escapes and makes it to David. And this is incredibly ironic because he's carrying this ephod. You think, well, okay, 
That doesn't mean anything to me. Okay? You can be, that's great. What's an ephod? An ephod is like a priestly outfit. Okay? And so it describes the people of Nob as, as at least the priests who he who Saul killed as those who wore the ephod. But there's a one special ephod, and that's the ephod of the high priest. And in this ephod, or this outfit of the high priest, over the heart was kept the Urim and the Thummim, which were these priestly tools that were used to discern the will of God. So God actually spoke and revealed his will through that. And so ironically... Saul drives away his ability to even discern the will of God and the ability to discern God's will arrives on David's doorstep. Isn't that interesting? How God facilitates the demise of Saul and also the wisdom and the discernment of David. And so sure enough... uh, they use these tools, but we find that there were suspicions in verse 7 about, well, about David's men saying, oh, if we do this, we're going to be noticed. It happens, and it says in verse 7, now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah, he finds out. This is not good, okay? The whack-a-mole game has begun, because he knows where he's at. But as we move through the text, listen to the uh, kind of sickening spiritual interpretation that Saul gives these events. In verse 7, he says, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Meaning is the way the city is constructed in such a way that, boy, he picked the perfect city to attack because now I can get him. And notice how Saul just totally reads into the events his desires. And he spiritualizes it and sanctifies it as if It's God's desire. He is interpreting his life through the lens of self. And he assumes that God is most interested in showing him favor, even though it's clear that God has forsaken him, and God has even told him that. He's got a different lens on. Saul will not accept God's terms of repentance. And he refuses to come humbly, and so he sees the world through this prideful lens of this false spiritual interpretation. It's a note to us to be careful when it comes to discerning the will of God purely on feelings and circumstantial indications. They are a factor, right, when we're discerning what God's will is. But they are not the primary or sole factor when determining what to do. We are masters of sanctifying our circumstances. And we see that happening in Saul's life. And so he's got these glasses on that he sees through, and he overreacts in typical Saul fashion. He's like the Peter of the Old Testament. Uh, In verse 8, And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down. So he grabs every soldier. The Philistines have just attacked an Israelite city, and Saul's priority is kill this one guy. I don't care what it takes. I don't care what danger that puts all the other cities of Israel in. And this is going to come back to bite him in the end. So he grabs all his soldiers. David's got to die. Now it's interesting. That's the reaction of Saul. But then in verse 9, we see David's reaction, which is very different. What does he do in response? Does he get you know, a closed meeting with 10 of his top advisors of which he probably doesn't have any at this point because of the guys he has. But does he strategize? Does he plot? No, he, he seeks God again. It says through this ephod that Saul has driven to him and he prays humbly. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Maybe there's some regret over being involved with the last city. And seeing what happened because David got involved there. So we see him ask these questions, God, what do you want? This is not good. Saul is coming himself and he's bringing every soldier he's got. God, what do I do? He comes humbly. David knows if Saul's willing to take out the city with the priests in it, Caleb doesn't have a chance. So in the end, David's rescue of their city might be their demise, and he doesn't want that to happen because he's the anointed king of Israel, right? 
And so God answers his two questions. Yes, Saul is coming. And yes, the people who you just saved will give you up. I mean, that is just not what you want to hear, right? Like you want to hear, no, it's going to be like the Alamo. They're going to buckle down for you and you're going to overcome them. And you're going to, nope, they're going to sell you out. So David and his men get out of there. It says in the text that they went wherever they could go, (laughs) which means they didn't really have a plan. They just knew where they didn't want to be, okay? So they left and they took off and they got out of there. And he ends up in this wilderness and these strongholds. And and even though Saul is is bent on finding him at Calah, the search, you know, Saul calls off the search initially, it says, this expedition. And it says in that last sentence, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Isn't that amazing? The king with every resource can't get his will done. And the king with nothing who's on the run can evade him anywhere he goes. Do you see this contrast, the pattern, what it's intended to do? It's, It's promoting a way of depending on the Lord and showing the folly of pride. Saul has all the resources, but it's ultimately God who's at work. And David's big contribution to this is he's seeking God, he's trusting God, and he's flexible. Think about this. He shows up. Okay, you need me to, um, to stop running from Saul. You need me to do a little fighting on the side. Okay, I'll do that. Does a little fighting on the side. Okay, now you need me to run away in order to save the city. He saves the city twice. Isn't that interesting? It's the king. And in very different ways, because his, the undertone of his life is, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And so if it means running away like a seeming coward, I'm good with that. If it means stopping and fighting when it seems like the wrong time, I'm good with that. Notice these patterns, seeking, trusting, presuming, strategizing. They're very different, and they keep coming up. Now, how do we see this scene one in our point? Our point was, when David is vulnerable, fearful, and helpless, he seeks and submits to God and is both delivered and deliverer. Notice that David is never comfortable in scene one. He's not thrilled about what's going on. He's on the run. He's vulnerable. He makes an unpopular decision with his guys. He has all of Saul's men's after him. His life is forced improv. And yet, despite that circumstance, David is hungriest for God's word and God's will. And that's what his, his priority is. God, what do you want? What do you think? Where are you leading? So while David is hungry, Saul is satisfied. He thinks he knows what God's will is. And he's deaf to God's clear voice. See, it's David's dependency that leads to his deliverance and makes him fit to be one of God's greatest deliverers. And it's Saul's pride that makes him a fitting illustration of where self-sufficiency goes, right? They're pictures. So that's scene one. And scene two, something that same pattern is noticeable... But um, it's broken down into two sections there. In verses 15 through 24, we kind of see the, the support systems for these two guys. Okay? And then we also see the outcome in verses 24b, you could say, through 29. So we'll just take those two sections. You remember, we're contrasting these two lives. And so um, the support systems for these guys, for David, it's Jonathan, right? His friend who shows up. For Saul, it's the local guys, these Ziphites, um, who support him. And so Jonathan, in verses 15 through 18, shows up and David is fearful, which is why Jonathan says, do not fear. David is freaking out. And it tells us why in the very first sentence. It says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. Uh Uh-oh, Saul's coming himself. That's going to mean his soldiers are probably going to be responsive in all kinds of ways they wouldn't be otherwise. And that means Saul is really interested in accomplishing his mission. Saul himself has come. And in the midst of that fear, who shows up? It's Saul's son. I mean, what timing this is, right? And what guts it takes for Jonathan to show up 
knowing that Saul had left to find David. And yet the encouragement of David is important enough for Jonathan to come. Saul has already hucked a spear at him, right? And he goes right into the center of the battle. It reminds me of Proverbs 17, 17, which says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And that's Jonathan. And Jonathan, after all this effort, what does he do when he gets out there? Does he like bring a bunch of guys or bring a bunch of weapons? Or He simply reminds him of God's words. Isn't that interesting? Remember what he told us? David, remember what he said? Jonathan is helpfully unoriginal. He's not going to find you. You're going to be the king. My father knows this is what's going to happen. Don't give up on God's plan. And listen to what the effect is on David. It doesn't just endear him to Jonathan. What does it say happens in verse 16? And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. That's an important little phrase, in God. One commentator says that Jonathan's presence is not ultimately what David needs. Jonathan is a reminder that there is one who really needs to be present, and that's God, and God still is. See, David is encouraged not only because Jonathan loves him and has kept their covenant, but he is more certain now that God will keep his promise. True friends join our unstable hearts with God's certain promises. And that's what's happening. Jonathan is okay if he's forgotten. If he can attach the fear of David to the promises of God, then he's done his job. And that's what happens. And David is supported. And his support system is encouraging David in the direction that David wants to go, which is dependence and reliance on God, right? And so we see that in 15 through 18. But in 19 through 24, we meet these Ziphites, which is a really unfortunate name for people, but that's a side note. These Ziphites um, are kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. They're fellow Israelites, but I think they're motivated by, you know what, guys? This might be a good time to get in good with the king. Because we know these hills and caves and, and nooks and valleys and cracks, and we can track David down. And if we put our knowledge to use, we might be able to get some favors later on. And they are selfishly looking for an opportunity to advance themselves because they're the locals. They are what Judas was to Jesus, fellow Israelites selling out their true king. And you notice just the selfishness of this interaction when the Ziphites go up and say, oh, we know where he's at. In verse 20, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul says, listen to this, arrogance. And Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord. Why? Why would he describe them as blessed by the Lord, these selfish Ziphites? For you have had compassion on me. He was so self-interested that to, to, to show favor to Saul is to show favor to God and would earn them something. Do you see this? how the, the focus on himself just preoccupies Saul? And we don't see Saul going, okay, well, guys, it's an interesting proposal. Let me take some time and pray on that and figure out what to do. He... he he strategizes and plots and makes his human plan. He says, well, you got to make really sure this guy is really slippery. <laughs> like that's the reason why he hasn't caught David, right? He's really good, so you got to get your best guys on there. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> take really careful notes. I mean, it's just bizarre. But it's what we do, right? It's the stupidity of human planning. And thinking that human ideas are sufficient. But that's what they're doing. I'm not going to pray. I'm going to send out a reconnaissance team. And hopefully they'll figure it out. The other reason we know that these guys um, are uh, shady characters is David actually writes a psalm about this incident in Psalm 54. 
Okay, I'll just read it for you. This is the introduction to the psalm. It says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites went to, and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? And he writes a song about it. Here's what he says. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies in your faithfulness and put an end to them. And he goes on. But these are men of ill repute. They're ruthless. They're not concerned about God's will. They just want what they want for themselves. And you see how the various men's support systems encourage them in the direction that they want to go. Jonathan encourages David towards dependence on God, and these Ziphites encourage Saul towards this selfishness and human uh, striving. So with that all set up, we look at verses 24 through 29, and it seems at first like Saul's strategy was the better one. And this is what the author is meant to do in this text. It's meant to build to the climax, that kind of background music scene in the, in the chapter. This is that. And that's why they're describing even the little details of what's going on. They're on this side of the mountain, they're on that side. And it's like a play-by-play that's going on. Because it's meant to rise tension in us. To think, oh no, Saul's plotting and his strategy and his self-sufficiency is going to work. So, Saul is on one side of the mountain, David's on the other. Saul, in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's kind of unclear, but it seems like Saul is dividing up his men to surround the mountain, meaning there's no way out, there's just open country beyond this mountain, the place they think it is, and it looks like it's curtains for David. It looks like he's done. And David is probably feeling as helpless as he has up to this point. I mean, he is wondering... Is this seek and submit plan really, was, was I just kind of making that up? Was that really the best idea? Is Saul really going to get the best of me? I mean, you got to remember, Psalm 54 hasn't been written yet. This mountain hasn't been called the rock of escape yet. This is like where you and I are sometimes, where you just don't know what in the world God is doing. And it seems like you're doing the right things and you're praying and you're reading the Bible and you're being with God's people and you're not just navel-gazing and you're, everything seems to be right and yet it's so wrong and you just don't know why life isn't working and your schedule isn't being kept by God. One author says, it looks as though the rock will become the grave. And it's on that cliff-hanging moment you notice what the text says in the last half of 26? As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came. A well-timed messenger who's traveled dozens of miles. At this very moment, a messenger comes. And he says, of all people, the Philistines have attacked us. And this is a diversion for Saul. I wonder if, if God just wanted Saul to be close enough to David for David to hear this messenger. I really wonder, like, were we talking like a football field away? Like, I wish I could have been there and seen this scene. Well, in God's good plan, he uses the Philistines to deliver David. Remember, it was the Philistines who started this whole thing. They attacked the city of Kela. And so these Philistines, in God's sovereignty, go from being aggressors to being saviors under the sovereign plan of God. An incredible finish to this story. So what does this teach us? This scene, and thinking about this scene in our main point, it shows us that David's seek and submit plan is the way to go. The God whom he is seeking and obeying, this is the sovereign God. He is aware of all things. He has no need for strategy, which kind of assumes a lack of information. 
He has no need for reconnaissance teams or local guides. He is the God of promise who has been leading his people by faith from the time Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And every word that he has spoken, he has fulfilled. And every word that he's spoken about the future, he will fulfill. This is the God of David. The God who David is depending on. And he comes through just in the nick of time. Dale Davis describes it this way. He says, verse 19 through 28, then teach us what providence means. That's the strange ways God works to keep his people on their feet. Is this providence for David only? Don't some of us have some stories to tell about God's strange saviors and startling timing? No, Saul is not gone for good. David's distress is not over. Final relief has not yet arrived. But 1 Samuel 23 does show what resources Yahweh gives to his servants in the middle of their trials so that they can withstand the pressure of them. Now listen to this. True, the darkness is still there, but perhaps part of it is the shadow of the Almighty. In scene two, we see how God resources his will how able God is. Jonathan's come to encourage us and strengthen our hands. Overconfident Ziphites are relied on, which yield nothing, and they just show how right God is. The Philistine saviors are proof that all are God's employees, whether they know it or not. In the end, the seek and submit plan is victorious over the presume and plot plan of Saul. So, what does this teach us? What are the implications of this? Well, like I've said, we do have two very different patterns, some different ways of thinking and approaching God in this text. And one commentator actually says, and I think this is so wise, that the closer that they get to each other, the clearer the distance is between their ways of thinking. So we see that Saul and David are operating in different, different attitudes and different frames of mind. David is seeking and trusting. Saul is presuming and plotting. Now, this is kind of, I feel like a, a Sunday school lesson where you're like, well, what's the better option? Trust and obey or presume and do your own thing, right? And you're like, trust and obey. And you'd be right. But that, it's, it's really simple, but it's really difficult, Right? I mean, if you think about what that involves, at its most basic level, this is about placing our will under the will of God, especially in a time where you're vulnerable. Right? David aggressively seeks out God's will. He willingly submits. Saul is placing his will above the will of God. Instead of seeking God's will, he presumes to know it, and he kind of reads the circumstances with his lens. And so we see how the, when the pressure is on, these two men are kind of illustrations of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where David is trusting in the Lord and leaning not on his own understanding. And Saul is trusting in himself and leaning on what he thinks and where that leads. I know that's simple, but it's not easy. And so what I'd like to do, just in describing the implications of this, is just describe... Three characters, Saul, David, and God, maybe in a way that's helpful to us as we think about how to apply this to ourselves and where we see ourselves uh, in this text. Let's start with Saul. Poor, poor Saul. Before we give him too hard a time, I, I, like I said, leaning on not on your own understanding is not what we're accustomed to when we arrive on planet Earth, is it? We are, we are born with very high opinions of ourselves. And we demonstrate that in our thought process and presuming to know things. And that's all normal for being human. And it's sinful because it's pretending like we are sufficient when we're creatures. But if you think about it, putting your will under the will of another person is both terrifying and unnatural. I mean, think about just saying... I will submit my will to my boss, whatever that means. Not my will, but yours be done. Or to a professor you have, or a parent who's over you, or 
Think about the fear of that, submitting your will to the will of a flawed human being is a scary thing. But obviously, if you insert the God of the Scripture into these equations, you can see why it works. But can't you identify with Saul? Thinking that you've got the best idea and the best way forward? Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and you're just in that same frustrating place where Saul was, where he he sought David every day and for some reason couldn't get his hands around him. And you can identify with that, right? I'm trying my best and I'm doing everything that I know to do and it's not working. Maybe you can identify with that frustration. If you're not a Christian here, you cannot lean on the God that you are not near to. And you cannot lean on his understanding if you don't understand it yet. In Romans 12, it describes us as living sacrifices first, and then out of that, we are able to discern what is good and acceptable about the will of God. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to understand that you're not near to God just by your default. You're not only not near to him, but you're opposed to him. Not because you're out there murdering people, but because you're trying to live as if you're enough. You're trying to live as if you're not a creature designed and made for the glory of another and for the purpose of another. I mean, this is, this is, bummer, this is bummer news, but it's also wonderfully freeing. The reason why you're struggling with being self-sufficient is you're not. And so the, the good news of the gospel is that as a result of understanding this about ourselves, that not only are we not spiritually neutral, we're opposed to God because we desire to be independent from him in ways that are toxic and forever unhealthy and damning. Our understanding of that can lead to repentance, a change of mind, where we agree with God that I am not sufficient And I do things that anger you every day. And when I do those things, I deserve retribution from you. Because you're just. But at the same time that God has provided a way. For people who want to be independent, to become dependent again. To be forgiven through the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was sent. Who was born and lived and died and rose. Lived the life and had the obedience that you could never have done. He did. And died on a cross as a substitutionary atonement, which means to be exchanged for you. That he could actually receive the punishment that you deserve for being so independent, frustratingly so. And for that to be attached to him forever, in every way. And then for Jesus to rise from the dead, proving that that payment was exhausted. And that his defeat of of sin is not merely the presence of sin, but the power of sin. Where the slavery that you and I experience under this independence, this supposed freedom, we can actually be freed from by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you're frustrated by your self-sufficiency, you're in exactly the right place. Because there is good news for those who are not sufficient and for those who are sick and need a doctor and those who are sinners who need mercy. It's called this gospel, where you simply change your mind about yourself, which is really God changing your mind, but we'll talk about that another time. And you embrace and you trust that what Jesus has done can make you right with God and actually change you as a creature. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you can identify with Saul. Maybe you can identify that you feel distant from the Lord and as a result, you are making a lot of plans. You're strategizing a lot. Now, I'm not against plans. If you know me, I'm not against plans. (laughs) I'm hyper-planner type A weirdo when it comes to that stuff. But there is a way that that that's sinful independence. Maybe you're in a confusing time or a time of transition and your vulnerability you, you hate when it's really an opportunity A divine invitation to write your own Psalm 54 and see God's deliverance. Do you long for nearness to him? You cannot lean on the God that you are not near. 
And the good news is God is not in a location. Take note, if this is you, how God supplies resources to those who are near him. Repent of your Saul-like independence and go to your high priest. It says in Hebrews 4, you think about this nick of time saving that happens in 1 Samuel 23. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I guess the question is, are we really in a time of need? Would we admit that or not? So maybe you can identify with Saul. But what about David? David is this example to us of seeking and submitting to God. And so I think two questions for us to consider as I pondered this this week. First, am I eagerly seeking the will of God and not my own will? Especially when I'm vulnerable, hurting, confused, lost. We can be willing to do God's will, but not interested in finding it out. Are we seeking his will? The second question, am I submitting to what I know to be God's will? You know, maybe the problem isn't seeking. You know. <laughs> and that's the problem. You know his will, but it's submitting to it. I think we do that by the power of prayer. We see David just going again and again and again, inquiring of the Lord, inquiring of the Lord. May that be a descriptor of us when we're gone. Here lies Ben Cunningham. He inquired of the Lord. <laughs> I, hope that's, I hope that's true. So let David be a model of this to you. Mighty, mighty David. Freaking out, full of fear. God, what do I do, David? And last, I want to draw your attention to the character of our God. What an amazing hero he is in this chapter. And that's why David sings about it in Psalm 54. And how many times my heart doubts this, but it is absolutely true what he sings in Psalm 54.4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. David says, with a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Is the title helper on your short list of the descriptors of our God? Do you view him as a helper? It's what Paul describes God as in 2 Timothy 4, in a trying time, kind of similar to David's in verse 16 and 17. It says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. See, this is God's MO. He does this sort of thing all the time. And I think David's dependence, it was a learned dependence. You can imagine him sitting on the ground after Saul had gone, just kind of relieved, all the guys panicked. Kind of looking at that mountain and go, what should, what should we call it? How about the rock of escape? The place where God came through. You know, there's a lot of times in scriptures that God calls his people to build an altar for remembrance so that we can return to those things those ways that God has worked. And be encouraged, family, that God is our helper. And maybe a way to, to be refreshed by that is to return to the altars that maybe you have built in your mind over the course of your life and you've seen undeniably where God is at work and that he is invested and interested in your good. Some may not be able to see that right now. Some are waiting and hurting and wondering. And I think this chapter is meant to inject hope into us that God is our helper. 
That's who he is. Now those altars will be different from family to family and person to person. We have seen and entitled God's saving grace in many different ways, but we all have a rock of escape, don't we? A place where we can turn to and see God's invested interest in being our helper. The cross of Calvary and the empty tomb are our rock of escape, are they not? Our undeniable testimony that God is interested in being our helper. So may, may we find peace in that. May we follow David in seeking and submitting to the will of our helper this week and this God that we can trust. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we know our need of you. And we confess many times that we deny that you are indeed our helper. And we subscribe to the satanic idea that God helps those who help themselves. Father, I pray that you would rid us of our Saul-like tendencies to think that we know, to act on that knowledge, and then to fall flat. God, I pray you would, you would cure us day by day and one degree of glory to another from our self-sufficiency. May this be a church that confesses that we are not enough and confesses that you are enough. We believe that. We know that from the gospel that we've contributed only sin and judgment to our salvation. And you, God, have, have accomplished what we simply could not have even contributed to in the slightest. So cure us of our Saul-like tendencies and give us a hunger for your will. Not a surfacey hunger that... that praise as a way to be able to say that we're praying, or that reads your word in a way that is, that is surfaced and, and uninterested and actually yielding and being shaped by what we're reading. But God, we need you to do that in us. Cause us to, to hunger for your will both day to day and week to week as we look at the big picture of our lives, as we think about how to approach tomorrow. God, give us uh, the heart of David who inquired of the Lord. We thank you that you're our helper. Help us to fight lies that say that you are something else this week. And may we just walk in that humility that will ultimately lead to our final and full deliverance. We thank you that that day is coming, that it's nearer now than it was before when we started our service. And it's certain. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.